and welcome to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Katie, here with my co-host, Maggie Warren. Today, we have a great interview with Daniel Shakevich, who is another Stanford graduate student with Maggie and I, and he is also in my lab, um, in the Laboratory of Organismal Biology, or Lauren O'Connell's lab, and he's a third-year PhD student with us. You know, Steph, thinking back on this interview with Daniel, um, I think the things that stood out to me the most were his fieldwork stories, which are an adventure in themselves. Mm -hmm. The fact that he did science was just like random things in his kitchen and his bathroom, which is amazing and funny. And how he does his film work with science. He's actually like a a filmmaker and incorporates that into his everyday science, which is pretty awesome for all you artsy folk out there. So I think this is a pretty awesome interview to listen to and we really hope you enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for being here. So my first question is, how did you first become interested in science? There's, uh, I, I feel like there's sort of this generic answer that a lot of people give where it's like, oh, I was interested in the natural world and, and things like that. Like I spent a lot of time outside and then I turned into uh, my interest in science. And I think that's true. I think I, I grew up in sort of a pretty woodsy area um, and I spent a lot of time outside, a lot of time uh, looking at animals specifically went to this environmental education camp uh, called Kettle Creek for, for, for years and did all the programs there. I was really interested in the natural world and, and everything about the trees and the, the ecosystems and the public knows. It was really cool. And I, I have a harder time pinpointing when that general like feeling of, oh, I like, I like this nature stuff turned into something more like a scientific pursuit. I think is in school. I try. I try to look back into school, and I always remember that I like math and I like science, mm-hmm. and I liked doing those things. But it was sort of just because it was school, and I, I liked sort of doing school and being good at school. I think I can, uh, going back, we had this in Pennsylvania. We had this program called Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science. Uh, where you actually had to uh, design your own experiment and run it and then do this presentation and you then there were states and you could go to Penn State and stay there and it was like a lot of fun. But that, I think that's the first time I did science in like a experimental way where mm-hmm. we set things up and saw what happened. And it was super silly at first, like my my first experiment. I, and it, well, it's not silly, it's, it's legitimate. Yeah, I, what was it? I'm curious. And how old were you for that? Were you in high school? I was in eighth grade when I started. I remember because it started, the program started in seventh grade and I didn't do it the first year. And like my friends did it and I got jealous. Um, I was quite, quite the nerd apparently. Um, but I, uh, I tested how uh, different containers for bread uh, prevented bread from going bad and maintained it as being edible. Uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. I love that. <laughs> Uh, but it was, it was like a whole process. So I would bake the bread myself with my mom and then I'd have different containers. So I had Ziploc bags, aluminum foil, wax paper, a Pyrex box, and um, and just the control was just leave the bread out and I'd slice it up and leave it out. And 
Uh, this, and I, I would continue doing this for, for a few years. I, I guess I'll talk about that, but I think it's sort of funny uh, because that is sort of an origin. But this first year, like I learned a few things. So A, I got a surprising result, which was like sort of hard to interpret because it wasn't hard to interpret, but it was uh, it was different from what I expected because my I set out with my hypothesis that like keeping the bread in the Pyrox, Pyrex box would let it be edible for the longest. Mm-hmm. But in reality, leaving the bread out without anything caused it to dry up and nothing would happen to the bread. Whereas like, yeah, the bread in the pirate's box would stay moist and would get mold in like a few days. Yeah. Um, So that was like, I think early on, that was like one experience right away where it's like, oh, this was like, I had a hypothesis, but it wasn't, it wasn't specific enough. Like if I had been asking whether like moisture content was maintained or mold was gonna go, it's two different things. And it's just like, it's edible. So that was one lesson. And I think the other uh, lesson I learned was like science needs good storytelling as part of it. I remember my uh, my dad uh, ate part of my experiment the first time. And every time I gave a presentation after that, and like my mechanical eighth grade presentation mode, I would just make sure I had that story. And then my dad ate part of my experiment. And it was good. And like the judges would laugh and I'd be like, ha that works. Yeah. I also learned, I think this is the experience. I, I tend to talk extremely fast when I present. And this was when Starbucks, we only had 10 minutes. And you know, like when you're when you're a scientist, like 10 minutes to do a full experiment is not a lot of time at all. Uh, so I would just go, and yeah. I still tend to do that. Yeah, and that sort of, I feel that got me hooked and I kept doing that. And I actually ended up from like ninth through 12th grade doing this, this series of experiments where I was testing phototropism in bean plants and I would grow them under different wavelengths of light and see how much they bend um, and things like that. And I started out doing these experiments in the bathtub of the bathroom I shared with my sister. And we had we couldn't use the bathroom. We had to use my parents' bathroom. And she was extremely mad at me for like a few months every year. Um, I ended up shifting the entire operation to my closet. I took all my clothes out of my closet and put them in my parents' closet. I would just like open the closet doors and there would be lights with plants. Um, and it ended up like getting pretty Intense. In my senior year, I actually like diffused the oxen out of the plants into auger that I like made in my kitchen and then put it back. Like there, there's these series of experiments that were done around phototropism um, uh, and how oxen specifically controls phototropism. And I sort of recreated part of that in order to measure um, the oxen concentration in my plants. And then I was like doing everything on my kitchen counter. I remember I actually like sterilized my counter with, with some alcohol we had in the house for drinking. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. And it was it, it, it was a building process and I was able to develop hypotheses over time. And it was personal too. And it, and it, it got me excited. Um, yeah. And I love that you were able to do that with stuff in your house. So, okay. So you graduated from high school and then you did your undergrad at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And so could you talk a little bit about that? Like what did you study and, and what was that experience like? So I 
went into Vanderbilt knowing I sort of wanted to do some science stuff. I've been very STEM oriented, but I, I didn't know. I feel this, I, I don't know how much to go into this, this stuff necessarily, but I felt pretty pressured parentally to do something medical or neuroscience. And I had, I had even participated in some neuro activities in high school independently and things like that. And that I, I feel like that was perceived as the, the more, uh, you know, the science with, with the more heft, the, the, the more respect yeah. science um, in my household. And my sister was had gone to college already and was like doing biomedical engineering. And so I sort of stuck out the first year and you know, taking the intro classes. I knew I wanted to do biology based on what I had worked on and my interest in the outdoors. And it was sort of holding off for making decisions. And then by the end of the first year, uh, I decided that uh, I, instead of doing the more, you know, uh, medical side of things that I, I wanted to do ecology and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and things closer to a natural world. And so I ended up choosing, I think from the beginning of my sophomore year to, to pursue like uh, we had, it was called EEOB, Ecology, Evolution and Organismal Biology. Um, mm-hmm. that track and I don't remember like what if there was a specific instance where I said no this is definitely what I'm going to do because I just took the intro classes and then decided that uh, yeah that's that's that, that seemed more right to me I joined the lab that studied uh, sort of plant insect interactions mm-hmm. and uh, that did some chemical ecology things it was Dr. Patrick Abbott's lab um, I did work on aphids and milkweed leaf beetles, which I ended up working with quite a bit. And that was an experience where I got to, uh, yeah, try out some behavioral things, try out some basic wet work, learn to <laughs> spend a lot of time taking care of plants and, mm-hmm. and insects. And it was good. It got me thinking and then at the same time of taking my coursework um, and, uh, and thinking about what I was interested in. And I think it took me all of four years to figure out what I was actually interested in. And I was, I was doing a bunch of stuff that wasn't science as well as we'll, we'll probably talk about. So I wasn't always super focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did an REU one summer and, uh, Can you explain what an REU is? It's a research experience for undergraduates. It's like an NSF funded program. So I went to uh, Dr. Michael Milgram's lab in Cornell um, in the plant pathology department. And I worked on this uh, fungus that's like a carcinogenic crop pest. Um, and uh, can it can be a serious issue if it infects crops and has this aflatoxin in it um, that, that, that can be carcinogenic. That was the first time I was really doing whole, like, it was my, my thing for the summer. It was just like every day I'd go in and spend so long. I had to make these little tiny uh, microcultures to, that I had to inoculate each with one Drosophila larva. And I would just like be there all night, just like moving Drosophila larva into tubes individually <laughs> as studying whether the, the fungus would produce more toxin if it was competing with uh, with the pest. It was, it was something different than, than what I'd done before. It's still sort of on this same chemical ecology track. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, it was cool. It was actually really cool. It was it was intense. I, I think I worked really hard, and the, and the thing like, the thing I was working on only worked like the last week, which is just uh, which is pretty true for uh, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, I feel like that's always the way. At the very last minute, it comes together. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to. Uh, I think I'm I'm getting off track with the question though. In that, 
I I feel like I after deciding that I wanted to do EEOB, I, I sort of thought that it was going to be one thing that's concentrating on compliance and insects. I had I never had any field experience in that again. That's always mm-hmm. sort of what appealed to me about mm-hmm. that sort of science the most, but it never happened. I was just like doing this work and I was happy doing the work. I, I thought it was cool thinking about what would cause a plant, a, a specific insect to choose a toxic plant as part of its diet and what effect the plant would be having on the insect. Uh, it was cool and it, it helped me think about the animal decision-making and, and things like that. And I it was able to design my own experiments again in a more, uh, in a, in a more advanced setting. Uh, and that was cool. Um, but I, I think it took me until my my uh, last year to actually focus in more on perhaps what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And a, a large piece of that is I took this great class and I've talked about this this professor so often with uh, Ken Titania, who is a professor in the Vanderbilt Biology Department. And it was neurobiology of behavior. And I'd always been interested in behavior, but I had never really approached it from the, um, from the neuro aspect and the class was just so fascinating with talking about different brain systems in different animals and how those systems are the underlying substrates for all these really cool and interesting behaviors um, talking about bats and echolating or how owls use uh, hearing in order to uh, localize their prey and how the brain is actually supporting those functionally. It was so cool. And yeah. I had such a blast in that class. And, uh, and we, uh, there so, we talked about starnose moles and we talked about some insect behaviors too um, and responses. And uh, it, it, was, it was just so cool. And that, that was the moment where things sort of clicked for me. I was like, oh, I, I like this. I, I like thinking about how, what animals do and how their actual, what, what the substrate is, how, how that yeah. is be supported. Yeah. So did you know when you were in college, or I guess at what point did you sort of figure out that you wanted to pursue a PhD and how did that, how did your parents feel about that? Because I know you said that they were a little more medical leaning. And so was there any sort of tension with your family about pursuing a PhD? I think by the time I was like a senior, I I, uh, I almost did not apply to PhD programs. I was feeling a little down in academia. I was just like tired and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So at that point, when I actually applied for a PhD, I think it was like a, a sigh of relief for them because they thought I might just go and do something. And I still think about that. I'm like, I might have done something else and would I have been happy doing something else? Probably. I'm super happy doing what I am right now. Though, so mm-hmm. I'm glad I made this decision. Uh, at the same time, like my dad asked me if I was going to go to medical school, like well into the first year of my PhD. Like, with with some seriousness, I think. Yeah. Um, so that was not, there was still like a little bit of a of a I don't know if it was the disappointment, but there was still still that that angle to things. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm so I was I was pretty down at the end of senior year, or when I was in the middle, I guess, when I was supposed to be applying to things, and I sort of got jolted into applying to a few programs, and I was taking this. Uh, 
uh, I guess it, it should be noted that we are in the same lab, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, we're I'm, we're in Lauren O'Connell's lab in the laboratory of organismal biology at Stanford. And the reason I found out about this lab is that I was taking evolution the first semester of my senior year after having been in ecology, evolution, and organismal biology major for for that for previous three years. So I was super checked out of this class, and I was not having a good time. Uh, because I should have taken it. It was my fault. I, but I, I was more checked out than I should have been. And the professor teaching it was a great professor, Nicole Crianza, who I'm still in contact with today. Like we, we email every few months. And I just like stopped by and chatted with her one time about something. And she was super helpful and like said, oh, I think like based on your interests, you might want to check this lab out. So I already applied to a few other, I applied to like a few other programs more similar to what I had already uh, been doing. And then we talked about behavior and, and neurobiology, uh, and she pointed to some things that were happening uh, with in, in Lauren's lab. And uh, that's when when I applied there in addition to, I only applied to four programs. And so mm -hmm. that was the fourth program I applied to um, with uh, like a last ditch effort. I think that was the last application I sent in. I was like, okay. I'll send this in now. I'm done. And Lauren like responded to an email very quickly, and it was super encouraging. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you do now in the lab? Now that you have joined Lauren's lab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what I do now is sort is neurobiology of behavior, um, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, specifically, I work on spatial cognition in amphibians and what that means is i study how they navigate and how their brains process spatial information which i think is really really cool so the work that you do i know also involves some field work so you've got to do your field work after all so could you tell us a little bit about what you do for field work what it's like and if you have any sort of like wacky stories from your time in the field so far yeah, yeah, I think there's a lead in. So part of part of this work that I do in spatial cognition is is to study how frogs and toads navigate in the field. And when I came into Stanford, I still I hadn't done any field work and I really didn't know if I was going to. And so I had to do rotations as 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 part of the program and I ended up joining. I think the story is is important for context. I, I went through rotations. I did my first rotation with in the O'Connell lab. I did two other rotations and decided I was going to join the lab. And I joined in the end of April on a Monday. And, and that Friday, I got called into Lauren's office. And Lauren was like, hey, do you want to go to Ecuador? <laughs> I was like, sure. And then uh, two weeks later, I went to Ecuador um, with uh, Andreas Pachukonis, who's a, who's a postdoc in, in the lab. And that was my first six weeks of, of field work. Nice. Wasting no time. <laughs> Wasting no time, yeah. Yeah, and then the, the second trip happened not, not so long after either. So uh, what I do for my field work and what, what I was trained to do is that I tag frogs and now toads, which I will be doing much more of, and we follow them around to get a sense of how much space they inhabit, and then we move them and see if they can navigate back to where we took them from. Um, this is an interesting question for a number of re different reasons. Uh, doing uh, a lot of the studies uh, that Andreas does all, are in poison frogs. 
And the navigation for poison frogs is an interesting question because they have really cool parent offspring uh, interactions where the parents carry tadpoles on their backs to deposition sites, and then they have to feed them and bring them food, and then it requires pretty complex spacing. So that's mm -hmm. one reason that we want to study navigation uh, in poison frogs. Um, and other species, now I'm studying it in cane toads, um, which also show pretty complex spatial abilities, but in different ways, uh, because uh, there's uh, cane toads are native to South America, but now they're super invasive in a lot of areas, especially in Australia, uh, where they show all sorts of uh, crazy spatial things. So they're, they're, they're sort of an impetus to study them there. Mm -hmm. uh, the nature of this field work is like, the, my favorite thing about studying navigation, especially with the cane codes, because you move animals and you watch them, you sit and watch them, which is really cool, and you get to know them pretty well. And then you just like get to be in the forest and experience everything. And uh, and at the same time, while pursuing your, your, your scientific question, I think specifically doing tracking cane toads has been really, really cool because they're nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So it's resulted in like walking kilometers through the forest at night and just like seeing the things that you wouldn't see. Um, yeah, like what? Oh, so many cool things. I've seen snakes. I saw a baby boa constrictor on the ground oh. one time. I uh, see like mammals that you wouldn't see during the day. I saw mm -hmm. just a few of these giant armadillos like running across the path. Oh. Cats. Um, I, I like saw, an ocelot? I saw an ocelot. I came into a full face in a, in a, in a swamp I was in. Uh, I think I've also had like an encounter with a jaguar. I, I think I did. No way. Yeah, it was, I, I can't, I feel I should just own it and say, yeah, I saw a jaguar at night. But I, there's enough doubt where there was a big animal with seemingly appropriate eye shine and it backed off after I saw it. So. Yeah. So one of the things that I know that you've done in your time in the field is make some movies. And I know you are a filmmaker in general. So can you tell us more about some of the films that you've made in the field and then also just generally how you've incorporated that secondary interest into your science? Yeah, yeah. So I should preface this by saying that in, as an undergraduate, I studied both uh, biology and film. So I came up with, with both of those things. having studied and made a few films. And I've sort of been thinking about how to incorporate film into my biology work. I think that's one of the it's easier to do in the field sometimes than uh, than in the lab uh, because you're you're seeing stuff and you're working and you can just document the work and the animals you're seeing and then there's more evident visual things as as you're working long whereas when you're in the lab environment um, in the field I made the first time I went to the field was in Ecuador to track frogs and I made a a short documentary uh, about that process and what we experienced that had some great moments, uh, getting stung by things, getting parasites, uh, <laughs> and seeing really cool things and being rained on. And it was also about our methods and how, how we did our work. It was super cool and, and pretty, pretty straight on informational. Um, the second time I went to the field, I went to French Guiana for uh, more months than expected. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess we should circle back to, to talk about fieldwork stories. Um, and that trip resulted in much more silly content. I did make one. Um, I did make one sort of. I, I made a video about tracking toads and what that process was like, and and the sort of 
experiment that we're doing and what we hope to do in the future was definitely a little sillier than before and then made a few shorts that were just not informational at all and it had it had like scientific names of frogs we had one that was like called be the frog where we uh different different members of the field team pretended to be a frog and, and, and that's how we how we found their frogs which is actually sort of true like when you're when you're looking for a frog you have to be the frog you have to think like where where is this frog going to be sitting yeah going to be under this leaf or like in this river bank and things like that so that was cool and i like i like doing funny stuff I think there's room for that. It's something that I've been trying to juggle and think about because I, I like doing educational content, but I, I mean, I got into filmmaking stuff because I like movies. I, I think it, it, it's a cool way. It's a cool art form that I personally get a lot of mileage out of thinking about and thinking about how you can show the same thing in different ways for a different effect and you can make something dramatically, you can make it funny depending on how it's written and how, how you shoot it. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. So even even with these little shorts, which aren't very technical or anything, they're, they're sort of short, but you can still think about like, okay, here's the human and here's the frog. How can we get this human in this frame to look like this frog? Mm-hmm. And like, how can we edit between them so we can, um, so 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 we can make it funny like that and i think that's still cool from the filmmaking side of it um and i, I think there's uh, i think there's room to combine uh, the, those things that are maybe more on the entertainment side and things that are more on the educational side that maybe more people would watch one or the other and you, you get a, a broader audience and be able to pass some information along and this is something I, I think about pretty consistently. Like if I want to make something, especially if I'm making something for the lab, like I, I've done a few times now, I don't I don't want to do something where it's just like, oh, haha, that we didn't, it, it was like lightly funny, but we didn't get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. Unless, yeah, once in a while, that's okay. But otherwise you want to think about how, how can you get something that's entertaining, but still passes information along. Uh, and that's where like storytelling comes in. Think about yeah. Uh, how you're presenting your material in a way that uh, people can follow along. Yeah. So I guess we're going back in time a little bit now, but can you talk about sort of how you decided between like pursuing film and pursuing science when you were in college and, and how you have tried to sort of interweave those together currently. And if you have plans to like continue to do that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So I started off as just like a biology major. And then I, I took some film. I knew I was interested in, in film and movies. I, was like, I thought I might take a few classes or minor. And then I took the intro courses and I was like, oh, I guess I, guess I have to major in this. So I was like completely uh, obsessed with it. And I started doing work in, in both biology and film pretty simultaneously. And as I said, I only spent one summer doing research. So my first summer at Vanderbilt, I actually did a service project. I did like an eight weeks organizing an outdoor education uh, program for uh, for youth in like inner city Nashville. And uh, my second summer, I went to Cornell and uh, did the RU. And then my third summer, I went to LA and I interned at the production company in. Yeah. Yeah, so I had like the both like sort of professional-ish experiences in, in both things before I, I I graduated, and that it was a cool experience. It wasn't it wasn't I mean you know, I don't really you know, want to be an assistant in the production company necessarily. It was still right. cool. Yeah. Um, 
And then I went back for my senior year and I was like tired and confused and didn't really know what I wanted to do because I had, uh, because I had these, these competing interests and I really enjoyed LA, but I knew that uh, I didn't necessarily want to be like working in the production company and uh, I liked science, but didn't know if I wanted to do a PhD and um and yeah, I, I was I was really confused for for a few weeks, and I think I'm still confused. Maybe that it, it never wore off. Uh, but it was like a combination of like parental pressure and thinking about what my options are, and I think also the fact that if I applied to a program and uh, didn't want to go, if I got in, that was still an option. So I think that's why this is the logical. I, I didn't have anything against pursuing. PhD. I thought that it was it was a, a viable option. I just didn't know if I wanted to do it right then. I still think about that, having taken some time off. I mean, I, I went right in from undergrad uh, mm-hmm. in the end. But I sent the applications in and I was like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and then I got in and I was super excited. And I thought I had to think about it. Like when I, when I like, did I, did I want to come here? I, I only got in uh, Stanford. Um, for I had like a weird thing, like one lab lost funding. I got rejected from one lab and one lab just like never wrote back to me after I had talked to them for a few months and it was oh. weird. Yeah, but then this had just like opened up and it was, felt like a best case scenario in a lot of ways. And I was like, I'm really excited about this work. And I, I, it is what I found most interesting. And and, that, uh, and moving to California seemed cool. I, I, I never, never done that. And that was definitely part of it. Um, and what I can say after having made that decision and coming here and, and work is that I think doing a PhD is like so great because you're doing work that you want to do, right? Hopefully, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to speak for everyone. I feel like I'm doing work that I want to do and that I can work these different components of my life and my interest into my PhD. Like no one's going to sit and tell me you have to do film stuff for your PhD. I could not right. volunteer to do anything, but I also have the option to do those things and yeah. to figure out and, and pursue professional development and things like that. And it's definitely still majorly science focused, um, but it's cool to have the option to to do that. And it's honestly exciting to be working with uh, a question that you actively want to be pursuing every day. Yeah. There's times where I'm tired of like, everything sucks, nothing's working, yeah. what, this is a lot of work. But at the same time, I've, I, I've never had like a real, a real quote, I'm doing, I'm doing air quotes, a real job. Uh, uh, and I, I feel like a little spoiled because of that. I think I, I've, I've just gotten used to sort of always being able to pursue something that is sort of personalized, not that jobs aren't personalized, but I'm working on the like questions that I, I sort of chose to work on. Yeah. I feel very lucky in that regard and that I can, uh, I can be excited about them pretty consistently. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think one thing I know we've talked about is just like using, doing science communication in sort of different formats. And I think film is a really awesome way to do that. And so I wonder if you could talk about how you use film and we talked about this a little bit already, but how you use film to do science communication. And then also just like more broadly, the role of scientists and sort of sharing the information that we have with others and how you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the question of using film to communicate science or how to do it has, is evolving so rapidly. There's now even things like TikTok, like people are doing, mm-hmm. I, I, this is one account that is really great animal facts, I forget the, the person's name. And it's really cool. And it's still like sort of a visual. It's not, it's not exactly like, you know, I'm not shooting a full video and editing necessarily, but it's still like a, a way to, to communicate science, which is mm-hmm. cool. I think it's, uh, you can, there's ways to communicate everything uh, from writing to, you know, so a podcast or film. I think, I think the, the benefits of, of having a visual medium is that you can really think about how you can represent things to uh, make things make sense and what symbols you can use, mm-hmm. and how, how you can tie them together. Because a lot of times concepts are abstract, even if you read them in writing, uh, but if you can show something happen or, or if you can, uh, if you can show a symbol that represents something, you might be able to get it across easier. I feel that there's also between uh, having someone read an article about something or watch a video about something is a difference because an article um, has language and, and not that the video doesn't have either, but it's a different way of consuming media that might be more or less open to mm-hmm. the people who are pursuing it. Um, I think that's one of the coolest things about whenever I make a, a video related to science in some way is, is thinking about what do I need to show? What's the most useful thing? Um, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm starting to make a series of science demo videos with different uh, Stanford scientists for this uh, for Stanford Science Class, which is an outreach organization that I help organize. And I was making the demo video actually just working on it yesterday and I had thrown a bunch of stuff in. And then someone else watched the video and was like, do you need to have this chemical formula pop up? And that's one of the elements that's in video, right? You can make things pop up and, and when, when it's helpful or not. And, uh, and I was like, no, that's not super helpful in this regard. We can just take it out. It's, it's, it's not helpful in getting the actual concept that we want to get across, um, even if it is an actual factual, a piece of factual information, but it doesn't fit in that project. And so that's, I feel that's constantly the process when you're making the videos. It's like, how can you, what information is important to put in and what can you leave out and how can you make it engaging and funny so mm-hmm. someone will sit through the whole thing? Um, and how can you still, even if it is engaging and funny, how do you still get the information across? Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways to do this and people are finding different solutions. There's this, uh, there's a set of videos called science sketches. Um, and they make two minute, they have different scientists make two minute videos um, in different ways using different forms about their research. And I think that's it's really cool um, to, to figure out how we can distill things without, you know, quote unquote, dumb, like dumbing them down. I feel that's right. not the right way to, to go about things. It's how do we pick out the pertinent details that someone who's not engaging with that, with that research matter every day can still understand what's going on and feel informed about about the science. If someone listening is interested in pursuing making some science videos, do you have any advice for sort of where to start or, and it can be super practical in terms of like, make a TikTok, get this camera, like, you know, just any sort of advice that you might have. Set your phone up and, and shoot something. I mean, everyone has a camera now, I think. I mean, everyone has a, 
that most, not everyone has a phone, but most people have phones with really great camera capabilities. And that's maybe eventually you'll, you'll get a camera and think about uh, and think about how you're going to shoot with a camera. But I think the, the, the best place to start is just to shoot something simple with that's more than one shot to, to think about how you're going to put different images together. I feel that editing is something that often gets overlooked. Mm. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, I think there, the, the level, the barrier for, for entering like the video content world is getting lower and lower all the time. And there's still, of course, different people have different resources and different equipment, which kind of have quality of work, but there is always a good opportunity just to try something. And now if you, if you make something, you can put it out and sort of get almost instantaneous response for mm -hmm. what, which is good and bad. And scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the things I love from this conversation is I feel like both in terms of your perspective on film and your perspective on science, it's very much I'm getting the message of like, you don't need anything fancy to do these things. And you can like sort of use what you have around you um, to either do experiments or to like, you know, make movies. And so just sort of, I feel like oftentimes that's a misconception about both of those things, honestly, as not a filmmaker, I feel like I have that misconception too, where you need all this stuff and you need like a fancy lab or whatever. And so I think it's great to remind people that like you don't need those things. And generally speaking, you can start doing some really interesting things just with the stuff that you have already at home. Yeah. And there's, I think there's a benefit from taking that angle because it leads you to find like innovation. There have been I, that my some I learned the most doing things that like no one else has seen. Where I would like be by myself in my kitchen and shoot things where I would be in frame multiple times and like uh -huh. different different characters and just like messing around like that. And it's just me in my kitchen, or and, and I end up learning at least how to put something together. And if you mess up something when you're doing something homemade, you might have put a lot of effort in it, but you know resources are are you can, you you haven't put like things under the your work to it probably and then you can recover and try again um, right. so that's the that's the other part of it um, and you learn a lot when you're when you when you go through that process of like making something yeah so what sort of advice would you give to someone who's interested in science if they're like contemplating between different careers or different paths to follow do you have any advice in sort of helping them think through like things that they should do if they're thinking about becoming a scientist, how they might make a decision between different career options, et cetera. Things that have just been like useful to you as a scientist, any sort of advice for someone that's like interested in science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the, one, one piece of advice is to really think about the nature of the question that you, you're asking or that you want to ask. I feel like some research decisions might be made based on like a study system and, and something that you're used to. And I think that something I've learned throughout doing science is that methods and techniques are learnable. And it's, it's, it's evident just to say it, but I, I, I feel considerable anxiety and like, with, and like trepidation every time I'm doing something new, I like want mm -hmm. to do a technique. I'm like, oh man, like real scientists are doing this thing, like they're cutting up brains or they're staining or or they're doing this, this this bench work. And then like you do it once with someone's help, and you're like, oh, I can do this. I'm, I messed up the first time or whatever, but I can I can do this. And then eventually you're doing it too. And I feel 
that's true for whatever sort of science you're doing. You can, you can learn the things that you need to do if you put in the time and you have good mentors, um, as I've, I've been lucky to have. So don't limit your decisions like based on the things that you're familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's definitely, if you if you have an interest in a question in the field, then you should be able to go uh, and pursue that field. After, after a certain point, right, people are going to expect you, if you, if you become really good at something and it's something that you, you, you pursue professionally, you might, you, at that point, you probably have more flexibility in what you want to do. But like early stage and like if you're applying to grad school or coming out of undergrad and try, wanting to try something else, um, you, you're like, uh, you're not a, a fully, uh, you, you haven't gone off on, on your own path completely. You're, you can still be uh, a, a stem cell with some sort of potential. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I started my PhD with plans to do one type of science and then have completely pivoted to a type of science that I had never done before. And so, yeah, I'm learning how to do all of that stuff. And I was, I still like you and consistently like, nervous about doing new protocols and stuff but yeah you learn and and it's not been a barrier in any way it just means I have to learn new things and I feel like I have the misconception a lot of people have the misconception that if you don't know how to do something coming out of undergrad like that's it you're done and you can't do that which is just super not true yeah I just I'm a, I'm a neurobiologist I'm doing my my air quotes again I just worked with Grace for the first time and it's, uh, I mean, it's great. It's so interesting, so exciting to be doing something new and learning something, even though I'm like a, a PhD student and doing research, there are always the opportunity to like learn and, and keep learning and doing things and adding to your skill set. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I, I think that's part of the, the PhD or the mindset that you're supposed to get in your PhD. I hope this is something that I can take away and continue to do. I hope that in the future I will know that I, I can learn new things because I feel that it's always the, the easiest way to succeed is to keep learning yeah. and doing them. So when you were an undergrad, you had both this film interest and a biology interest. And I would imagine that many people who might have similar interests where they're interested in an art and potentially a science or maybe even just an art um, could be thinking about like, are there ways to integrate the two and how sort of how does like art generally speaking play into science i think this is a great part about like being at the university and being surrounded by a diverse set of scientists and that there's it's not unique to to have like artistic interest and scientific interest i think there's a certain type of person that is often drawn to both and and people have stronger interest in one or the other but you find other people in your community uh, that are also interested in in pursuing artistic things and scientific things uh, or being really good at both i i did a rotation in a lab where uh the mother grad student who was mentoring me had actually gone to conservatory before starting his PhD and was a really, really amazing jazz pianist. It was so cool. And I have uh, friends here that are musicians or like I'm part of a film group with the medical school uh, where we organize screenings in the medical school that people are excited to go see. I have uh, another one of our cohort mates. I just learned uh, transcribed fungal sequences into music and then like made piano pieces, which is like so cool. People yeah. find ways to, to express uh, art through science or science through art. They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not completely separate. Uh, and I think 
that it's really exciting when the worlds interact and build upon each other. I'm consistently surprised. I feel like I find more and more people that we know in our cohort and just generally around the university who incorporate art in some way into their science. And I think also science itself is becoming more beautiful, I think, in terms of the images that people publish and the figures that people publish. And so I feel like over time, those skills are becoming more intertwined, which I think is awesome. For sure. I think it's that's super exciting. And it becomes an avenue where you can another like method of science communication where you can share your work more when it's visually or audio, audio wise appealing or understandable in some way. It immediately becomes an avenue for you to, to, to share it. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, that we would circle back to field stories because then we started talking about film and stuff. But yeah, do you have any other uh, field stories you want to talk about? Yeah. Oh, man. There's so many, so many cool <laughs> things that happen in the field. I, I think I met a lot of cool organisms that I had not heard about or seen before. Mm-hmm. Sicilians, for example. Uh, if you haven't seen a Sicilian people listening, you should go look them up. They're these amazing legless amphibians that look like big earthworms. And whenever it rains really hard, they like out of the mud and then crawl around. And then when you try to grab them, they're, um, they suck back into the ground. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Sicilians are really cool. Yeah, a lot of people who are herpetologists will go their whole lives without have, ever having seen a Sicilian. So it's so cool that you saw one. I'm so jealous. Ah, <laughs> uh, they're so cool. You'll have to see one. You'll see one at some point. One day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Being in the, you get the opportunity to see things that you've like heard about or haven't heard about, but it's really amazing. So it's so cool and you spend so much time and it's not just that you learn about different animals, but you learn about how everything works together, um, which is really cool. And where, if you see one thing where you're likely to find another thing and what it means, and you see all the different types of forests and, and learn things that are, are, are going on and yeah. You also see the strangest things. Like one time we had this turtle that sort of hung around where we were working. And one time we found like three other turtles beating him up. Like the turtle was lying on its back and there was another male standing on top of him. And there were two other males like on the side, like planking him. It's like, what's going on there? I don't know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Weird. Yeah. And there's things like that and rare species. Uh, it's, it's Yeah. Cool. I feel like it's so great to be able to go to the field because then you can see things in their natural habitats and you see like phenomena happening in nature that then sparks your questions of like, huh, why do they do that? And then that's where a lot of research comes from. It's like trying to figure out the part and seeing why and how things do things the way that they do. And those questions might never come up if you didn't go out into the natural setting and see them. 100%. And the other thing about it is that we we are laboratory scientists and we work with organisms in the lab and we have a certain perception of how a frog behaves after it's been sitting in a little terraria for so long. And it's so different and you understand the animal so much more when you go and you see how it actually behaves. The the other side of this, you understand like how the environment actually works. I think how how I often say it is like when, when I go for a hike in the woods, I hear a bird or I hear a frog and I'm like, oh, there's a frog there or there's a bird there. Whereas when you spend like six weeks or three months at a site, you you hear a frog calling and you're like, oh, that frog, like that individual is sitting there and I know like exactly what hole it's sitting in. It's like with, with the toads, I was tracking them so much that there was there was one 
there was one female code that I tracked for almost the entire, for almost three months. And I would go in when I didn't have her tagged and I could just like find her again, visit you where she would be sitting. Like, and they, I, it's, it's so cool to see the world work like that and you become a little part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I, I don't, I, I try not to anthropomorphize in my head too much, even though I give most of the animals I work with names, <laughs> which is kind of fun. But I try not to like think about their behavior. I think I'm joking around like, oh, he doesn't like me or it's like, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a toad and it's, it's scared of me because I am bothering it. Uh, and that, that's what's happening. But you see like these behavioral patterns happening between individuals that it's like there is animal personality. For example, yeah. I, I had one toad that I was tracking who would consistently when I was near it, would jump into the water and swim away to the point where I was tracking it. I would get into the river and walk along the river to head it off because I knew it was going to jump into the river when, when I got there, which led to some hilarious standoffs. Like, so it's sitting on the bank and I'm like in the water, standing there, like waiting for it, like, come on. <laughs> You know the thing? It's like I had this moment where the toad's sitting there and I'm sitting there and just like standing like this. And it's that moment where it's like, in a movie where you're zooming in on one person's face and you're zooming in on the other person's face. And it's like, it's going to be a nice moment, except right when the nice moment is about to happen, like grab the toad and before it can jump away. Um, <laughs> yeah, have, it also becomes a little, when you like step, take a step back, it's like, I'm my, my job right now is, is running through the river and, and making sure this toad doesn't, doesn't get away. Yeah, um, I feel like that's one of the funniest things about being a PhD student is sometimes our jobs are just so weird. <laughs> we're like, we're just doing the craziest things and you take a step back and you're like, huh, I'm getting paid to do this. Like, this is pretty cool. You know, yeah. like seven-year-old me would have never thought that I would get paid to do some of the things that I do. Yeah. Yeah, it's what I, I have this thought too. It's like when I, I had this thought trajectory, when I was little, I thought being a biologist was sitting in the woods and looking at frogs. And then I, I got older and I was like, oh no, like being a biologist means doing all this wet work and looking at using chemicals and, and, and being serious. And then like I circled back around to like, I can, I can still like, I can do a lot of that. Like I can, I can sit in the woods and look at frogs, and I can, I can do like complex techniques and things. Um, yeah, we can do all the things. It's so wide ranging of like all of the things you can do as a scientist, including making movies. Yeah, and, and all the things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think being a scientist means, for a lot of people, means uh, doing like thinking about how your science itself interacts with the world and whatever different capacity that, that you're interested in, uh, which is yeah. so cool. Great. Oh, I feel like that's a great place to end. Okay. So Daniel, if people want to find you, your movies, your science, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at, let's see, what's all my, I mean, I guess I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at DShaky96. Um, I, you can find a lot of my videos over on the Lobsu, L-O-B-S-U video, uh, on the video page, on the Lobsu YouTube page. Um, and where else? I, I post pictures on Instagram. Um, actually, that's my Instagram is dshaking96. My Twitter is dshaking18. It says okay. I graduated from college. Um, and there's a lot of frog pictures on there. That's the oh. other, like taking pictures. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are the big, big, big two. Awesome. I'll add all of those links in the show notes as well, but just so people get a sense of it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here and doing this. This was fun. It was a lot of fun. Excited to see the future, uh, this future discussion. 
wow, right? What an adventure. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just love listening to Daniel's story. And it's always such a pleasure to, t- to listen to him and interact with him. Not that I did this interview, but I do get to interact with him quite a bit. And we just hope that you really enjoyed it. Hope that you saw yourself in some of his stories. And I hope that people feel inspired to go out and, you know, make a movie about something or do a little DIY science experiment and just sort of take the spirit of Daniel and continue on in your day and explore the world around you. And so thanks everyone again for listening. And we would love to get feedback from people about the podcast and this episode in particular. Uh, You can give us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this, or you can send us an email at roots to stem podcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on our website, which is roots to stem podcast.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thanks everyone.